Hello, welcome back to the Rheumatology Physio podcast. Jack March here, the Rheumatology Physio, and I am really happy to have recorded this episode with Dr. James Noak. I've been trying to get him on my podcast or on some sort of event for ages, and he keeps wiggling away from it, and I finally nailed him down to a Saturday evening and we recorded for an hour. This is the final part of the five-part series all about axial spondyloarthritis, sponsored by Novartis. I'm really grateful to Novartis for allowing me to record these podcasts and supporting me to do so. Um, do check out further axial spondyloarthritis resources on their ION program portal. There's a link in the show notes. And there is also a feedback link, which is really useful if you could click on that and give us some feedback about the episodes that you have listened to. Hopefully you've listened to the first four. So in this final part of the series, we talk about axial spondyloarthritis in sport and exercise medicine, the role that sport and exercise medicine consultants can take. And also we get some tips from Dr. Noak himself, which are really useful. Please do go follow him on social media. It's definitely worth it. The case studies he goes through, super interesting, usually include imaging um, of some kind or at least something definitely worth learning. There will, of course, be more podcasts to come. We've finished up this Axial Spondyloarthritis series. Do get in touch with me. Let me know what other things you'd like me to record podcasts on in the world of rheumatology. Um, you can find me, of course, on social media. Just type the rheumatology physio into pretty much any social media platform and I do come up there. So give me a follow. Don't forget to subscribe and like the channel. And hopefully you enjoy this podcast with Dr. James Noak. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Rheumatology Physio podcast. And I am really delighted. I always say I'm delighted, but I'm extra delighted to be joined by Dr. James Noak. Um, and I say it like that because it annoys him when I call him Dr. Noak, um, which he <laughs> genuinely doesn't enjoy. <laughs> um, and um, Dr. Noak is a sports and exercise medicine consultant. And we're going to talk about axial spondyloarthritis and sports and talk a bit about rheumatology and the setting of sports and exercise medicine. So welcome to the podcast, James. Nice to have you on. Thank you very much, Jack. I feel very privileged to be invited, given your podcast alumni. <laughs> well, I've also railroaded you into this a little bit because you um, dropped out on me on a couple of other events, didn't you? So I've I sort of forced you into this one. So I I and I don't feel guilty about that at all. That's very true, and I I definitely deserve this. But although we have um, rescheduled about fourteen fifty, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our diaries have not merged well have they <laughs> um so just first off just um tell us a little bit about or tell the audience a little bit about you and your um sort of day-to-day -day job at the moment yeah so yeah as you say i'm a consultant in musculoskeletal sports and exercise medicine because i don't just see sports and exercise conditions and cases so i see a whole range of uh, msk problems um <clears throat> i come from a quite a actually a very diverse specialty background so initially mainly orthopedics and surgical training and then I switched into sports medicine but then had to go through various acute medicine specialties including rheumatology which I enjoyed a lot I, I much preferred the medical specialties to to my surgical training so I definitely made the right decision and then we went into, went into higher sports medicine training after that um, I've been involved in elite sport for 10 plus years but sort of moved out of that to sort of focus on my clinical work um in sport mainly pro pro rugby union 
working with London Irish as their team doctor for 10 years, uh, but also athletics, high level athletics, um, disability sport as well, which I enjoy. Uh, and now, like I say, I'm mainly focused on my clinical work. So I'm, I'm primarily based at Pure Sports Medicine, which is a high performance sports medicine uh, clinic in central London, uh, where we have a great MDT setup. And also I've got a clinic in Spire Hartswood, uh, which is in mm-hmm. Essex. Uh, so that's, it's quite a simple, simple sort of day to, uh, week-to-week routine I've got now, which allows me to spend more time with my family and focus on the other important things in life. <laughs> yeah, pro sport doesn't really allow that so no, much, no, does it? No. <laughs> yeah, I've got my weekends back. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I've got a special interest. I seem to have gravitated or sort of cultivated an interest in hip, groin, gluteal slash buttock pain for whatever reason mm. um i enjoy uh so clinical conundrums and medical masqueraders uh and tendinopathy which is pretty much the, the sort of the bread and butter condition for all the sports and exercise medicine doctors uh so yeah yeah that's me perfect so we'll just briefly tell us what, what would be your average patient like if you had an average patient what, what, who do you tend to see yeah so yes yeah, so i alluded to you know, i see a whole range of musculoskeletal problems um the the lion's share probably are sports related Mm -hmm. um uh, and i would probably see the majority of patients are under 45 uh, which is relevant to our our chat today um so yes i see a mix of um acute and chronic injuries uh, in both the sporting and the sedentary population um but again because i have a special interest in hip groin buttock pain I'm seeing a quite, you know, a, a large number of those patients, and with that comes spinal pain mm. and tendinopathy. Um, so I'm almost seeing a, a, a risky demographic, I suppose, in terms of spondylarthritis, because you know uh, it's these patients are are presenting with you know, principally spinal pain, particularly in axial spondylarthritis, and with insertional tendon problems. So mm. a significant number of patients that I'm seeing are rheumatological conditions masquerading principally as sporting or physical activity related conditions yeah for sure and i and i always say to people who are working in usually at secondary care but in your case obviously um it's like ever so slightly different um i suppose you could be described as secondary care couldn't you um but it's like if they've got to you they're less likely to have the simple stuff the simple stuff goes to the goes to the the physios and the gps filter it quite nicely is always that higher risk as soon as they're getting to someone like yourself is that sort of the case do you think yeah i think so but there's still you know i still see myself as a well there's certainly cases that many cases are slipping through the net mm. let's put it that way um and you know i see patients who have had you know for me suspicious inflammatory type pain and symptoms for you know sometimes, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, I'm not seeing, you know, patients with relatively acute symptoms necessarily, you know, which is frustrating for me. Um, and, you know, it's like we were discussing earlier, I feel that an SEM doctor in a way is a, is a triage point or, or a safety net. You know, we, we're seeing this risky demographic and, you know, it's our role to be vigilant and make sure mm-hmm. we're screening these patients appropriately as they come through because they are, they are slipping through that and they're flying under the radar you know, we know that uh, from you know the NAS, uh, the NAS information um, that you know the average delayed diagnosis is eight and a half years, which is which is insane. You know, you know that's absolutely crazy to me. Um, and I, you know, I, I, what's was also interesting is that I, I would say 
up until about two years ago, um, I was seeing, I reckon, I, I guess, maximum two or three formally diagnosed spondylarthritis um, um, cases a year, maybe. Mm. And now, you know, in the last couple of years, I reckon I'm picking up two or three a month, mm. which is a huge jump. Um, and I'm sort of reflected on why that might be. It may simply be that I'm being more vigilant. You know, I have an interest in the area. Maybe I'm picking that up. Um, and that was, actually, that makes me think how much have I missed in the past, <laughs> potentially, which makes me a little bit, you know, a little bit worried. Um, <clears throat> also, you know, I've been pondering the, the role of COVID as well in the last couple of years. I mean, the COVID gets blamed for, for a lot of things, but we know that you know, uh, uh, viruses and certainly COVID itself can trigger a reactive arthritis. So mm. it's possible that we could extrapolate that to the onset or the trigger of a the first spondyloarthritic presentation potentially. Yeah, I, I wonder whether the people who were at risk may have developed spondyloarthritis in five, ten years' time, maybe, and then yeah. COVID's triggered it maybe slightly earlier yeah. uh, as a possibility. But it's interesting that you've gone up, you know. 10 that's uh, probably a tenfold increase yeah, yeah. isn't it yeah um do you think uh that any of the pressures that are being seen by the nhs is is driving any of those patients to your clinic do you think that's, that's, that's a really good point to be fair yeah so yeah people are switching sideways taking a sideway path to me you know i see a lot of patients who are so work in the private sector mm. and fundamentally patients are self-funding to see specialists outside of the NHS domain. So I know you're right, actually, they're coming to me with MSK problems and, and obviously naturally I'm picking up a subset which are inflammatory in nature, there's no doubt about it. But I think as well, maybe, you know, if we think about enthesopathy or enthesitis is the, is the hallmark of spondylarthritis, yeah? And we know that repetitive microtrauma or enthesial stress is what is purported to trigger the onset of the first manifestations of spondylarthritis and maybe it's a change in the physical activity patterns or the sporting patterns through through covid through lockdown maybe people are choosing different types of exercise or more exercising more mm. that's the only trying to think i'm trying to think of there's almost this this perfect storm of factors which are you know you've got maybe maybe covid priming the immune system and then you've got a an environmental or an activity trigger with sport that might be you know, hitting that catalyst Maybe that's what I'm trying to think of. But, but yeah, there's, there's numerous factors that are making me see a lot more. Mm. And, you know, I'm seeing lots of certainly interesting cases, but also in some cases, yeah, I'm frustrated for the patients, <laughs> upset for them as well. Mm. They're, 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 they've, been, they've been dealing with a difficult condition for a long time. Uh, and a lot of them have, you know, mental health con- issues alongside that. Um, so, and actually some, some of them, for some, for some patients, it's almost because you're breaking news when you're making a formal diagnosis or close to a formal diagnosis, you're in some patients breaking bad news, especially those that are super sporty and active and are mm. functionally disabled by their enthesopathy or their spinal pain, their synovitis. Uh, and that's devastating for them. So that's, that's a difficult conversation. But there is, there's another group of patients who it's almost good news because they've been dealing Yeah, relief. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they've been dealing with this mills, this sort of medical millstone for. Yeah, like I say, sometimes you know, 10, 15 years or so, mm. you, you finally give them a label and a diagnosis and maybe a bit of hope, especially if their disease hasn't been too severe and they haven't got sort of, they haven't got permanence, yeah, spinal changes, joint changes. Um, so there's a dichotomy there, certainly. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, for sure. And how many of the patients, um, might be a bit more difficult for you to call off top of your head, but um, how many patients, you know, we see in some of the literature that these patients see on average about six or seven clinicians prior to, to diagnosis. Um, how do you, are you seeing patients that are going through those? I mean, the 15 years or whatever, they're probably going to have seen a few people, but sort of on average, are you seeing them having seen quite a few clinicians first um, and for want of a better phrase, the disease being missed. Um, is, how's that sort of playing out in your clinic? Yeah, very much so. Um, and I wouldn't say it's any one particular physician or clinician that's doing that. Mm. Uh, yes, of course, most of these patients have seen their GPs. Um, and certainly in a time-pressured environment like general practice, you know, it's hard to effectively screen rheumatological patients, isn't it? Um, uh, Patients who have come through numerous physiotherapists. Uh, again, the condition's been flying under the radar. They've been pushed hard. For example, let's say they've got a, an insertional enthesopathy, a heel pain issue. Mm. They've been pushed hard and been hammering the rehab to no avail, sort of unsurprisingly. Um, and then they might come to me. But I see a, from other specialists and consultants as well, orthopedic surgeons, uh, where it's been overlooked and they come for a second opinion. So certainly I've seen a real mixed bag, but they've, yeah, yeah so a lot of them been on a quite a significant, difficult journey. Yeah. Are pretty fed up by the time they get to me, definitely. Are there, are there any obvious themes that those clinicians that are in inverted commas missing the diagnoses, that they're missing hallmarks? So, you know, you've already mentioned under the age of 45, the insertional tendon yeah. pain. Yeah, um, you know, we know things about night pain, um, early morning stiffness, um, joint stiffness, for example. Are, are there any sort of obvious themes that people are missing, do you think? I think the challenge is, I mean, certainly within the label of inflammatory back pain as well. That's, I think that's a challenge, mm. pain, because it's easy to call that. And there, are, you know, there are numerous definitions out there in various papers, but it's still quite vague, isn't it? Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. You can have a, a, a non-inflammatory or non-rheumatological City, you know, uh, occupational related back pain patient who's had pain for 10 years and it can behave, they can, it can give them night pain. They can be stiff and like an old mm. man, woman first thing in the morning. Um, so I think it's hard to pin down the inflammatory label or pin it on, on that patient. And especially because it's, it's a really important part of what the ASAS criteria lays down as the, as the fundamental part for axial spondyloarthritis mm. as, their, as their diagnosis. You know, having inflammatory, inflammatory back or buttock pain for well, at least three months before the age of 45. Um, but I can see how they could be easily missed, to be fair. So I get that. And also things like blood tests. So blood tests are controversial. I don't know what your experience is, but you know, anecdotally, I find that inflammatory markers, CRP, ESR, often aren't raised in my mm. patients. I think maybe in the reactive arthritis patients or the reactive group, maybe they're quite consistently raised, but I couldn't tell you from a textbook whether that, that, that fits or not, but it's not, it's not, it's not typical. I don't typically see raised inflammatory markers. So it just certainly doesn't rule it out. And I think maybe there's other clinicians are looking at that and using that a place mm. to weight on that potentially. Same with HLA B27 as well. We know that's, we know that's a relatively sensitive test, don't we? Yeah. But it's not particularly specific. Well, it's variably specific across the the spondylarthritis subsets, mm. um, and we know that patients with spondylarthritis can have and can be HLA B twenty seven negative. <laughs> so that might throw clinicians. 
And we know there are, what, is it 10, 15% of patients are walking around the population, well, 10, 15% of the whole population are walking around HLA positive and will not have the, have the condition as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, that's the reliance on blood tests maybe is something I've seen as well in the past, yeah. Yeah. Um, what about x-ray? Are you yeah. seeing, are you seeing people rely too much on x-ray as well, do you think? Probably not so much x-ray because we've, I think we maybe moved more into a, an MRI time, haven't we? Mm. So X-ray still sits on the ASAS criteria, doesn't it? But I very I see very few pelvic SI joint X-rays. So. Oh, good. <laughs> but yes, certainly, given that you're, you're only going to see changes late on an X-ray anyway, I can see how that can certainly be missed. Mm. Um, but maybe it's more of an, an issue in terms of access to imaging. So lack of access to MRI in particular, being able to image the spine and the SI joints. Mm. And maybe the peripheries of some patients. Um, again, so uh, I can see how we, I can see how things can get missed. But when patients are coming round around in circles, it starts to frustrate me a little bit, a little bit more because I think, well, the penny has to drop at some point. Mm. And I, uh, it's it, I I swing back and forth, and, and I I find there's so so much variations in there. Like sometimes you you see a patient and they've someone's got stuck on a diagnosis so it's like proximal hamstring tendinopathy for example is a real classic oh they've had this proximal hamstring tendinopathy for like 18 months or two years you're like no they haven't like why are you like but they but someone's zeroed it and they made that diagnosis and they're like right that's what it is we need to do these things and we need to fix and then they refer with that thing and someone looks at it and they go okay this maybe it is that or whatever and it gets to it and then the the other flip side of it is someone go let's take proximal hamstring tendinopathy while we're just talking about it they go they shouldn't have proximal hamstring tendinopathy for 18 months or two years but i don't know what it is and and I find often it's the other systems that they miss. So it's the skin or it's colitis, ulcerative yes. colitis or something. Yeah. yeah. How much in 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 your clinic? How many? How, <laughs> this is a hard question. How many times is it that that makes you go, okay, there it is? Like because I it, my my experience is often. Yeah. I was just wondering about you. Yeah. Um, and yes, absolutely. That, that's really what I should have been talking about in the last conversation. Um, no, you're absolutely right. So, you know, it's just asking those key screen questions, isn't it? Um, and I'll, I'll say to them, psoriasis is a good example. Mm. And I'll say, probably, you know, it's a complete robotic and routine for me, but so do you have psoriasis? Do you have inflammatory bowel disease? Does anyone in your family have those conditions? Um, and <laughs> often they'll say no. They'll say, I haven't got psoriasis. And I'll start examining them. And I'll say, what's that patch? What's that patch on your knee? Or can I, you know, have a look in your scalp and you'll find patches? And I'll go, oh, right. I know. I don't know what that is, but um, you know, we thought it was eczema or whatever. So there's, de- there's, definitely, there's definitely things, easy wins, low-hanging fruit maybe, that, that, that can be picked up diagnostically to send you down a complete, you know, change the trajectory of the patient's investigations and management. Mm. No doubt about that. Um, so in the fact, yeah, the family history thing is a big thing. I agree. People just haven't had the time or haven't thought about exploring that a little bit more um uh, and yes yes the other things like rashes eye signs um you know patients will report you know i had episodes of red painful red eye symptoms a couple of years ago and i was told it was conjunctivitis and it all got better and, um, yeah so i mean this there's so many things to think about and i think if you've got a template and a routine in clinic then you're much less likely to 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 to, to miss miss key, key elements mm. of it no, i agree yeah 
Mm. I always find it interesting from a physio point of view. I remember being taught things like ask about the thyroid, you ask about the heart, you ask about the respiratory system, so on and so forth. And then we never then went, oh, what about the inflammatory system? Like it just didn't seem to, it's only, you know, obviously I worked in rheumatology for 10 years. So it's like you say, it's sort of something that I do reflexively and I I probably go too far the other way and think everything's rheumatological. Um, What about, so you, obviously you're seeing a, you're seeing a sporty population. Mm. How many are, dealing with these types of um, aches and pains and they just are thinking it's a normal part of playing sport a lot. So we know, you know, in, in, in professional sports, for example, even I know that a lot of players are playing injured um, and they might, especially through a season, they'll manage things. You know, we've, I've spoken to a lot of colleagues about how they, you know, help people be game ready and those kind of things over and over. How much of there is that, that you know, it's, you, tendon problems are probably a classic. Like how many footballers, for example, have, are playing with a tendon issue? Yeah. Um, do you know what I mean? So, you know, how much of that are you seeing? That's a really good question. Uh, probably not a, well, it's, it's something really hard to know. I mean, I'm definitely seeing a subset, subset of mm. patients that, come, that are coming through. I can think of handfuls of cases whereby, you know, let's say, let's pick a rugby player that I can think of that um, has had back lower back back butter pain and insertion of Achilles pain, and you know has been smashing NSAIDs for you know a couple of years, and he's in the twilight of his career, and it's just assumed that he's breaking down, mm. and you know he's struggling in the morning. He's he's more, yeah, we're on out on a, an away game or on tour he's the first one down at breakfast because he can't sleep or he's getting up in the, early in the morning but he's getting through far more NSAIDs so, so I'm definitely seeing I can, I can pick cases where that's definitely the case but I couldn't tell you how many of those are but mm. so the, the, the tricky thing is isn't it that some there's a, a wide spectrum of severity of enthesopathy so we're using tendons as an example uh, and so some some players can cope with that Mm-hmm. with little management and it's so you know ha, ha, we don't know how many of those we're missing the more severe ones might well trickle through to me and I, like i said i do see those and they're the ones that are not load related necessarily they're the ones that are not responding to offload rest they're not responding to heavy loading plyometrics etc um so they're definitely they're definitely out there but it's i can see why some might might be missed mm, um, sure. yeah no 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 it's tricky Certainly not easy, is it? And we wouldn't have an eight and a half year delayed diagnosis. No, no, exactly. <laughs> and I wouldn't have a job. And then this podcast wouldn't happen. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's definitely difficult. Um, the NSAIDs was going to be my next question, yeah. actually. The, I see, a, again, a spectrum of patients so, who either, oh, I've taken non-steroidals and they haven't worked. And I go, oh, what have you taken? Oh, I took a couple of ibuprofen last week and it didn't make any difference. Yeah. And then you've got the flip side of people who are like, they use ibuprofen to get through the day or whatever their flavor of anti-inflammatories is. How much of a weight do you put onto that kind of history? Because um, people use anti-inflammatories, so it's not unusual, is it? Like, but is, is that something that you factor in quite a lot? Yeah, I do actually. Um, and it's definitely... It's, I see it part of the, the SCM role as well, mm. alongside imaging and blood tests. You know, it's very easy for me to prescribe an anti-inflammatory as a, as a trial. And I tend to use a toracoxib, 60 milligrams, started 
an average dose. If a patient's, I mean, you're right, there are, a, there's a percentage of true spondyloarthritic patients who don't, don't have a profound response, which is just, well, it's a shame for them because they lose a treatment option, don't they, in a way. Mm. But, you know, if a patient comes back to me, and it happens quite a lot, I'll give them the etoricoxib. And when they first saw me in clinic, they are tired, peed off, you know, they're depressed, anxious, um, struggling to do their work. I, they come back a week or two weeks later and their whole life has changed. Yeah. I mean, you, you must see this all the time. Mm. Um, and, you know, they've had a good night's sleep. They've woken up and bounded out of bed like Superman. And they come in. I know, I know, I know they've had a good response because of how they are before I've even talked to them when they get out of the chair in the waiting room. They come down the corridor, they sit down and they're smiling and they've got some colour in, the, in their cheeks. So those patients who have that profound response, obviously that's a huge, that's a huge thing. But also the flip side for them is that they've had, that gives them a diagnosis. So it's, okay, it's great that they've had a fantastic response to NSAIDs, but also, yeah, there's a bit of bad news attached to this as well. But yeah, so I do put quite a lot of waiting on that. It's an easy thing. That's an easy mm. win, I think, for a, well, for any clinician, really, but I do that almost routinely in clinic unless there's any contraindications, particularly in enteropathic spondylarthritis, you know, with inflammatory bowel disease. You know, a, that's a bit more tricky. Yeah, absolutely. I always remember that so when I worked in the NHS in the rheumatology department, I was doing the spondylarthritis clinic. And so it was my job to see the patients to begin with and then, I wasn't the prescriber, but the rheumatologist would prescribe two weeks or whatever it was. I can't remember. It might have been two weeks of yeah. usually a toricoxib mm-hmm. or, or, or something similar. And at that time, we our follow-ups were about three weeks or four yeah. weeks. And I would I'd get a call after 10 days going, can I have another yes, prescription yeah. <laughs> because it's going to run out? And you're like, okay, well, we're going to diagnose you with spondyloarthritis over <laughs> yeah, the phone yeah. now because Literally, that's, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'd I'd be really interested to hear some cases. I know you've got plenty of them. Um, One of the things that one of the the reasons we sort of know each other is is Twitter and you you post these really fascinating cases. And uh, we sometimes will will have a bit of a back and forth on text or something. Um, But we're really interested to hear some a, a few cases where that could sort of illustrate especially sporty ones if you've got those um you know some different types um yeah so pick one shoot away let's, I, mean, let's I, could, I could pick hundreds i reckon yeah <laughs> over the last couple of years um I've, I've picked out a couple that i think demonstrate the diversity of spondylarthritis presentation really and the sort of the variability or overlap across across the subgroups mm. and the sort of the challenges and uncertainty that comes with the diagnosis because this you know we had this original phenotypic classification for, for spondylarthritis and now it's shifted to axial and peripheral more or less but but there's a lot of crossover isn't there yeah. huge over there's this venn diagram overlap and that and that's what i see really i, I don't see them pigeonhole that well at all but I've got a few cases. especially especially if you see a female like yes. yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah well that's the other thing i probably see far less females we're coming in or me making a, a, a formal diagnosis. Mm. Maybe just made me reflect on that, but it's certainly much more male. I don't know why that is, but, but I mean, the first case is a guy who um, who's in his still in his late twenties, so he's still pretty young, um, and he had well, like a ten-year history of, um, sort of sports groin injuries. Really, so it started with unilateral groin pain, which was diagnosed as um, what we'd previously call sportsman's hernia, or now inguinal disruption. Had, he was a very keen footballer, very active. He had that surgery, and it made him a bit better, um, but didn't have the confidence to return to, 
to football after that. So he focused on more linear based stuff, gym based activities, easier, easier work, easier stuff. Um, and then sort of was, was managing, but still getting into intermittent hip and groin pain bilaterally at that time. <clears throat> and then things deteriorated quite quickly this year. Um, so he went abroad to the Far East and had uh, got very severe gastroenteritis, so bacterial gastroenteritis, um, which was formerly microbiologically diagnosed as Campylobacter. And he spent two or three weeks in hospital in Asia. That's uh, colitis on his CT. I uh, was eventually discharged, got better. Then started getting, so it was about three or four weeks after he was discharged, started getting bilateral groin pain again, but a slightly different nature of deep-seated, mm. definitely with an inflammatory type of pattern to it. Um, also noticing weakness on the right side in his hip flexor. <laughs> so pain on active hip flexion, lifting his hip up, getting dressed, putting his trousers on, that sort of stuff. Uh, and then slightly, a slight period after that, starting to get lower back and buttock pain as well. Um, he then, so he came back to the UK, saw an orthopedic surgeon, they organized an MRI arthrogram of his hips. And when they went to do the arthrogram, which is a, a guided injection mm. for contrast, they noticed he had a, a massive effusion in his right hip. Um, they still, still did the MRI. Um, and, uh, of course yeah. they did. <laughs> and, yeah, unsurprisingly, he had a cam bump and a labral tear, as opposed mm. to does. And so he was getting teed up for surgery to have a scope and a labral repair and a cam osteotomy. Anyway, quite rightly, he was a bit concerned about that especially as he had on both sides uh, and came to see me for a second opinion. So when I saw him, you know, he was pretty, really miserable, you know, struggling to walk and get out of the chair. It just didn't fit really. Mm. Um, he had hip joint signs on both sides. So positive failure tests, but also definitely had weakness and pain on resisted hip flexion. It was completely shut down on the one side. When I did uh, point of care ultrasound, he did have two massive joint effusions. So there was definitely a, a, a sort of a raging synovitis going on uh, in his hip joints. And um, he definitely had SI joint signs as well, examining him. So I, um, so we organized an MRI scan of his pelvis, um, repeat, repeat one of them uh, of, his, um, of his SI joints. And so he, he had a sacroiliitis, uh, unilateral sacroiliitis, a sort of florid one mm. massive sign of ice in both hips as we, as we already know and on the right side with the idea of psoas was at a really significant tina sign of itis. so that's what was causing secondary to what was going on i assume in the, in the hip joint itself as you know i've got a bee in my bonnet about hip flexor hip flexor being prim blamed primarily for problems so it's a nice example of that there we go yeah <laughs> there we go it is never the hip flexor it is sometimes people sometimes the hip flexor, sometimes yeah. the hip flexor. in this case it was definitely in this case again yeah. <laughs> it's not primarily the hip flexor so there's a reactive tenus sinovitis mm. in his hip flexor so um he you know this so this guy basically has a uh, a reactive arthritis secondary to a Campylobacter gastrointestinal infection. So Campylobacter and Shigella are the two most common microbiological triggers for um, a reactive arthritis. And in a sexually acquired reactive arthritis, chlamydia and gonorrhea, I think, are the, are the, mm. are the key ones, aren't they? Um, but it's just this guy, so we particularly taught that in a reactive arthritis, you have a conjunctivitis, arthritis, a urethritis, if it's a sexually acquired, um, which this one isn't. But he did, this guy didn't have any eye signs. Um, the joint involvement is usually 
a mono or oligoarthritis. And in this guy, this is, was a bilateral hip joint involvement, which is unusual. Mm. And hip joint itself is unusual. So primarily, it's, it's, well, it's usually the knee, isn't it, most commonly affected in reactive arthritis. Mm. Then ankle, wrist, MTP joints. So hips way down the list there. Um, I think the in reactive arthritis, it's, it's underestimated how much the how much axial involvement you can have as well. So this guy obviously had a sacroiliitis. I think about 10% of reactive arthropathies have, have a sacroiliac involvement. And something like 30 or 40% of patients have an enthesopathy with it as well. So there, there's more to think about and more to talk about, I think, with a reactive arthritis beyond the, the classic triad that we get talked, told about. I think that's a nice, the case I think demonstrates quite nicely how it doesn't pigeonhole into, into your textbook reactive arthritis. And um, But he, he um, I sent him to a, I'm lucky to work in an MDT where I've got consultant rheumatology colleagues. So they saw him. We started on um, uh, prednisolone, oral prednisolone. I did some guided injections, cortisone injections into his hips, which completely switched off his pain. Got rid of that. And started him on etorococcib as well. So he's now mm-hmm. six, he's six, nine months down the line and his symptoms have all sort of come away now. They've all sort of dissolved away. And he's, been, he's quite lucky in that sense because 10 to 30% of patients with reactive arthritis become a chronic go into a chronic phase, don't they? Mm. Um, but I think, this, but I think this, the, the history of his inguinal or his sportsman's hernia, his FAI, his CAM, is a nice example of how things can sort of mislead you. Um, and, you know, you could have easily ended up having a scope, mm. you know, an, an inappropriate scope. So, and, and, yeah, I'm not quite sure how the fact that he had bilateral significant joint effusions still didn't trigger some sort of alarm bell <laughs> at the orthopedic level but that's that's the blinkers that's yeah, the diagnosis yeah, yeah. blinkers that is yeah. exactly. i've always you know, he's always been told he's got these structures mm. his hip therefore that's what it is he's following this path and no one's taking a step back and thinking outside the box with yeah. absolutely i mean you yeah it's really interesting to hear that case study because i have uh on my courses i i have some case studies that i take people through and um one that i've sidelined recently for various reasons but is almost that exact same case study uh in a um about 30 female um she got she was actually referred into our physiotherapy department via a and e um because her um back and buttock pain had gotten so severe and and um she so she and and she wasn't getting anywhere turned up happened to it happened to be lunch and I was the only physio there, happened to see her. And, you, uh, and she, it was reactive arthritis. She'd had gastroenteritis. Um, uh, she'd been on holiday somewhere and had it, came back almost exactly the same, not with, without the history of the um, uh, the sporting stuff. But yeah, really, yeah, uh, really interesting. I, I just I was going to bring up the the triad. It's, it, you see, it's with you said conjunctivitis. Um, what is it? Uh, um urethritis yeah that's right isn't it and then the knee so it's can't see like, can't we can't bend it. my yeah, knee yeah, yeah, yeah. um is is <laughs> formally writer's syndrome yeah. was it not allowed to say that anymore i don't know why. no we say it's formally was well don't know why wasn't he um he was a german in the 40s oh, that's right yeah so it's not very uh, really working is it? no it's, it's um yeah problem <laughs> bit, bit problematic um i think some of his experiments might have been problematic yeah yeah, yeah so you won't give you too much um yeah <laughs> um but yeah can't can't see can't we can't bend my knee yeah that's that's um, the classic reactive but um i must admit the one the reactives that i've seen mostly are similar to that presentation right. with 
inflammatory spinal pain or buttock pain. I haven't yeah. seen a lot of peripheral stuff um, in all honesty. Yeah. Um, but I think what's, what is really interesting with those is like you say, they do do the majority of them do tend to sort of burn themselves off after, after yeah. a year or so. So I wonder whether they just never turn up eventually yeah. on the milder end. Uh, yeah. They might never turn up. They, get, they, they can be a bit of a struggle longer term. You know, chatting to my rheumatology colleagues, then the ones that persist, Mm. They're a real challenge and they they could even end up on dmards etc etc absolutely yeah and they they like as you just sort of described they can have this real blurry mix mm. of like what is it <laughs> what do you treat them with um and i'm glad that that's not my job to do um to leave but that to gets, more reactive arthritis if you, in terms of the newer by the dichotomic dichotomous classification that we've got now it's, it's nudged into the peripheral Mm. on the arthritis group and yet as you say you know it has all these actual symptoms overlap as well so just you wonder how useful those those criteria are to at least at least the cold face yeah yeah well absolutely and the research treatment is different isn't it but, yeah and i i was you know when i when i um um, when I teach about spondyloarthritis, we split it into axial and peripheral. Because, uh, and the way I do it is I use ankylosing spondylitis yeah. as a proxy for our axial. And then I use psoriatic as our proxy for uh, it's just a, a useful teaching tool. But what I always preface the whole thing with, uh, with is it's uh, if you're diagnosed with axial spondyloarthritis, it's predominantly axial symptoms and peripheral is predominantly peripheral symptoms. It's not only axial um and i think there's a statistic in 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 some papers somewhere where in axial spinal arthritis a 98 percent chance you'll get a peripheral uh um emphasitis it's like so all of them do so um it, it you know like you say it, it's a whole whole system problem it's not it's not dichotomized in the real in the real world to, to these things and i think they're useful for research in some ways but um that last point makes me think about another case that, that I've, been, I've been looking at so the um slightly older guy in his 30s who is actually already diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis slash axial spondylarthritis and actually his axial symptoms his lower back and buttock pain have been really well controlled on anti-tnf mm. in five years or so within the nhs um and then in lockdown he was as many were ramping up his running stuff he's not really quite used to relatively deconditioned um then really struggling with posterior heel pain through that time and then came out of lockdown backed off all his exercise was still getting significant achilles insertional pain and plantar heel pain um so he was seeing an external physio who he was trying trying everything so offload boot that wasn't working then swung the other way. The pendulum swung quite significantly the other way. He was really having the heavy, heavy loading, plyos, et cetera, et cetera. And lo and behold, that wasn't working for him either. So, you know, it was almost getting to the point where it was to the point where it was affecting his activities, activities of daily living, his walking, mm. commuting, dog walking, playing with his kids. I don't think, I don't think the penny had quite, the, the, the penny had quite dropped with the, the physio that even though he knew he had ankylosing spondylitis, the, there was this peripheral manifestation or that could happen. So yeah, it sort of harks back to what we were just saying. Mm. Pigeonholing these patients as axial versus peripheral sometimes can be detrimental to the diagnostic process. But so he came to me and, you know, I use a lot of point of care ultrasound um, for evaluating entities and tendons, as you know, because I'm 
spend all my time banging on about them on Twitter. Um, but he had a really nice, well, not for him, <laughs> for me, for my Twitter cases, uh, very florid enthesitis. So you get really sort of th- 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 thick and swollen Achilles insertion, a very significant retrocalcaneal bursitis. So you see the, you know, the classic marked enthesial mm. soft tissue involvement as well. Big chunky calcific enthesophytes, and you see erosions as well. So it was a nice example of how point of care ultrasound can be really useful in the clinic. Um, and actually, you know, I, I, I'm the, undenied about it, but I actually did a, a guided steroid injection into the retrocalcaneal bursa. Obviously, we have to be mindful about the risk of rupture and tendon injury with that, but that made a huge difference to his pain. Mm. Uh, and with a period of offloading and very gentle graded rehab, we actually got him back to a, a level of gentle jogging, yeah, sort of easy five-a-side football. But I think in some patients we have to accept we're not. Uh, we maybe have to be realistic about what we can achieve with a difficult enthesopathy. Um, and you know, even with actually re-engaging with his rheumatologist and our rheumatologist, we played around with his. Actually, added in some. Um, traditional well, traditional DMARD, so methotrexate. We had him on course of steroids, steroids had a depot steroid, um, ramped up his toracoxib. We even talked about changing his anti-TNF you know, therapies. Mm. Even with all that, we still couldn't get on as, as, as on top of it as we'd like to. Um, so that was frustrating. And I think those those rehab principles sort of transcends axial, well, transcend spondylarthritis Generally, I think I'm seeing a skewed population where people are already pretty, pretty, pretty well conditioned and sporting, cope mm. well. But in the general population, the ones I'm probably not seeing, patients are starting from a poor baseline, are poorly conditioned, unfit. So I think any physiotherapist or rehab specialist needs to be aware that they have to be realistic from the outset and set realistic expectations about what you can achieve. And maybe the focus should be maybe, maybe more functionally orientated. You know, how do we help you do your job or look after the kids rather than absolute performance and strength measurements yeah absolutely i think the other thing we need to be mindful of in the inflammatory patients as well i spoke to paul Kerwan about this um is that they all get booted out of tendon studies because they're they are confounders so we don't know what happens so if you put them through a loading program we don't know like it's not done um and so so we don't know whether it's good or bad or indifferent or pointless. Like we just said, we have, there is no information. Um, and, and one of the things I saw, I've seen clinically trying to load those patients is they have this really sort of, again, to use that word dichotomous response, they're either terrible or they're brilliant. And it, and we're like, you know, if you see a, a normal Achilles tendon problem, you know, you're going to, you're going to put them onto that loading program. It's going to take quite a long time for anything to happen. And they just need to push through it for a bit. These patients, you like, you give it to them, they come back in a week and they're either better or 10 times worse. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and um, so it, it would be, I mean, I don't, it'd be difficult to, to run that study, I think, but um, it would be really fascinating to try and get hold of that information as to exactly what happens to them. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, I don't know if there's an appreciation for that in the population. So when, you know, a failure of rehab yeah. 
you know, we would you would use that as as a justification for a lot of things, really, um, depending on what your sort of belief system is around the free the rehab that was given. But a failure of of, of loading programs, like you've just mentioned, so they tried offloading, they tried heavy loading, and if none of it's making any odds, you're at least thinking your diagnosis is wrong. Yes, yes. Um, but in, in these insertional cases, if it's like you know the real heel pain sort of that plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendon insertion, that difficult, you know, which is which. Um, I think if that's a struggle, then I would really be thinking about, am I investigating this? Yeah. Especially in this young, like you say, this young population, like I'd be thinking that's, about that. It's sort of, yeah, it's a triage as an ad, isn't it? But, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about rehabilitation and physiotherapy, but also, again, taking a step back and looking at it from a, a sports and exercise medicine perspective and our roles that, you know, we need to be keeping these these patients just generally active mm. and exercising and being physically active, don't we? Because you know we know there's a huge cardiovascular disease and metabolic health burden in, in rheumatology patients, and you know they're the ones we really need to be facilitating exercise and physical activity in, aren't we? Um, Absolutely. You know, you know, there's a huge body huge body of evidence that supports the positive role of you know exercise generally. In, in managing disease activity and disease and symptom severity. Sevias, Sevias, the Swedish um, researcher who brought out that, 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 that key 2019 paper, BGSM, the, the BGSM paper, mm. showed that actually, contrary to some, some beliefs that exercise might be detrimental to disease, to the disease or you know, might accelerate disease progression, actually we show that it could that high in, high intensity interval training, sorry, not interval, high intensity training, cardiovascular exercise and strength based stuff could have a massive impact. Well, not massive, but a significant impact on uh, disease, uh, the symptoms and uh, disease activity. Mm, absolutely, um, and we've seen we've seen similar things in rheumatoid arthritis, and yeah. we are seeing similar things in osteoarthritis as well. So it all makes all makes nice sense and it fits our bias doesn't it um again yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. um it, it's an interesting thing i just want to pick you up on a little bit there is is about the the role of uh, this this stepping back stepping back seeing everything you know not bling blinkered um if you, you let's let's think about it. if you've got a physio and you, the physio's got the patient and they, they they've been diagnosed you know with axial spondyloarthritis do you think sports and exercise medicine consultants have a real role to do there? You know, let's because I I often say you know medics are different to physios, obviously, but you you come at it from a different perspective, and I have often really found that useful in that just this wider appreciation of the health system as opposed to the musculoskeletal system. How much yeah. of a role do you think you know? Is there there for sports and exercise medicine consultants? I think there's a huge role because we're not just sports medicine doctors; we're sports mm. and exercise medicine doctors. Mm. You know, our role is managing um, medical and long-term you know, chronic conditions with exercise and physical activity. So, yeah, I mean, it's our remit, really. Um, you know, we are. You know, we like I say, well, like I, I come from a diverse specialty background, but we, you know, we have a holistic training background, mm-hmm. and we see all elements of patient care and patient management from a musculoskeletal perspective. So. I, I think it's a key role, absolutely. Um, the workplace. Yeah, I think I, I really, you've mentioned anti inflammatories already, but also the steroids. Like, I really find that often really useful. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, in 
just having that um that skill set available and the contraindications you know I know physios, some physios can prescribe, the majority the majority of us don't, you know, almost I'll, I'll always defer out to a, to a doc for, for yeah. those kinds of things. But sometimes it's like, you know, you've got these other diabetes, for example, or, you know, other healthcare conditions that uh, are health issues that, that people have. And it's like, well, what is the impact there or thyroid or, yeah. you know, even, even hormonal issues like the menopause and stuff like yeah, that. It's yeah. just so useful. Yeah. So like, it's, it's like, if i could have a sports exercise medicine well, i do i have you but you know if <laughs> if i could you know if i was in the when i was in the nhs if i yeah. could have someone there and could just go what just what about this thing and you go and yeah. oh, no, i don't worry about it or yeah do that it's just sometimes that's so useful um, and, I, and um and it, we were talking before we sort of came on like about how you know the difference not the difference that's a ridiculous thing to say but um you've got orthopedics you've got sports and exercise medicine you've got rheumatologists you've got your skill sets um and you, often i think people defer out to pe- places like orthopedics for for yeah. interventional medicine for let's say and and i often wonder how much would it be better and how much keeping it away from orthopedics yeah. in sports and exercise medicine, especially in these rheumatology conditions. There's a huge role for orthopedics in 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 rheumatology conditions. But so. um, you know, earlier on there isn't. Um and, and I sometimes yeah, wonder, it, you know, it? people it's, like yourself is a good option. It's the point, yeah, it's the point at which we intervene in the journey, isn't it? But yes, I think having and this is the travesty really, I suppose, that we have lots of sport and exercise medicine consultants. We are trained by the NHS. A lot of us haven't found our place in the NHS because I suppose I'm being, I'm being put together. There's some, well, there's, there's lots of innovative SEM doctors who've created these posts, but we haven't had that much help, to be honest. Mm. Definitely, if you integrate someone like myself alongside you and a physiotherapist who has an interest in rheumatological, rheumatology and rehab in a clinic, plus you've got my skill sets of ultrasound and interventional injections and things like that, and the holistic overview, the exercise elements then clearly that's, that's a huge win for the patient. Mm. Um, but yes, I can see how a lot of patients will, the only option is to refer into orthopedics where maybe, there I said, there might be a slight lack of rheumatological knowledge or insight. And then you, know, you can see how patients might end up going down an invasive route, yeah, to their detriment. Um, frustrating. I'm just lucky that I work in the private sector and I'm, I have a really nice MDT setup like at Pure. So I've got physios who do have a special interest in rheumatology. You know, I can bring them into the consultation. I have plenty of time mm. myself. To, you know, I'm not time poor in my career, yeah. really. So, you know, I have to be mindful of that. You know, I, I guess that people struggle with those pressures. Mm. Um, but yeah, if you want to create me a role alongside... <laughs> I don't work in the NHS. It's quite easy with me. <laughs> okay, that's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you were, that was a general call out to the NHS, wasn't it? James, <laughs> James wants a, wants a post. Mike Dare, are you out there? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. The, the last thing I want to do with you is put you on the spot and go, if you had a couple of tips, so general MSK clinicians, couple of tips, you know, for let, keep it to a sort of sporty population mm. to make sure they're going to miss less. What is it called? Getting it right first time, you know, miss less spondyloarthritis patients. I know you're not going to like this question, but, you know, what would your couple of tips be? I suppose be vigilant. Um, you know, have be open-minded about the condition and you know even if you are 
pressure to try and apply a, a screening template. Like Paul Cohen screened them. Mm. Like, you know, have, that up in, you know, have that up in your clinic, apply it. Take, it doesn't take that long to run through stuff like that. You know, if, if it's not obvious, if it doesn't fit criteria for you know, local rheumatological referral, safety nets, you can do that, you know, bring them back. You know, educate the patients about what these symptoms might look like if they evolve without scaring them, hopefully. Um, and then, yeah, organize follow up so you can catch them yourself. Mm. Um, you can make recommendations. You have to be, I suppose you have to be a bit careful as a non prescriber, but you can make recommendations to patients about you, know, you could trial some ibuprofen, you can buy stuff out of the counter, give that a go. I think as a, if you're a non physician MSK clinician, I think having good relationships with the GP or even secondary care rheumatologists, people you can lean on and, and chat through cases. I think that's important. Uh, and I think, you know, harking back to the exercise chat we had as well, I think it's important to encourage all these patients to, to try and participate in exercise and physical activity, not discourage it. I think that's, mm. that's, I think that's what, quite a key take-home message. You know, it's safe, it's safe for someone with spondyl arthritis, proven or not, to exercise, basically. Absolutely. Great. No, there are four perfect tips. Brilliant. Right. So to finish off, um, you we've mentioned Twitter a couple of times. You do these really good um threads, they're called, aren't they? Of 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 case studies, which people seem to enjoy. You get some uh, a good few likes. Few a couple have tipped over a thousand or so, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. In recent history. Yeah, um people's people really like those. So what's your um what's your Twitter handle so people can come and find you? <laughs> Um, it's, it's such a good, such a bad Twitter handle. Um, if I can't remember, it's at Dr. JN underscore sportsmed. Yeah, that's a really bad Twitter handle. Yeah, okay. I know. Um, but yeah, okay. So we'll we'll pop that in the notes so or people can find in, you. Type in hash i n t h f. It's never yeah. It's, it's never the hip flexor. The, you must be the only person that uses that yeah. particular abbreviation. Or with consent, yeah. If you <laughs> with consent, tick. <laughs> <laughs> There's an in joke for people. If uh, listening, if you're, if you're not on Twitter a lot, you're not going to get that. But never mind. <laughs> Sorry about that, everyone. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much for spending the best part of an hour with me this evening. Um, That's a really interesting conversation. I think people get a lot from that. Um, hopefully, um, understand spondyloarthritis yeah. a little bit, sports and exercise medicine role a little bit. Maybe you'll get some referrals. Um, yeah. And uh, and um, yeah, hopefully everybody's found that useful. And re- yeah, thanks a lot for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed that. Thanks, Jack. Mm-hmm.